0: I was twenty when it happened. It was a dark autumn night on the banks of the River Elbe, the coal fires of Hamburg's stolid and crumbling tenements adding their chemical tang to the evening's damp mist. I'd been handed my match ticket as we left Feldstrasse U-Bahn station and then headed up the stairs in a one-way throng. Everyone around me was singing, stamping, and letting fall emptied cans of Holsten. They rattled percussively on the walkways. Through the turnstiles, with a creak, mumbled thanks, a drop of fagash, and half a ripped ticket pushed back. Then up the dozen steps and into the Nordkurve, just as Hans Albers' Auf der Reeperbahn started to splutter and crackle through the megaphone speakers, fixed to the overhanging roof of the main stand and the stanchions. Smoke and steam rose from the crowd, thousands of shining eyes turning towards the dew-speckled field as kickoff grew near. Someone brought me a bratwurst, with a ripple of sweet mustard along its glistening top edge and a foaming beer in a plastic glass. Just then, the teams ran out, a roar went up, a floodlight failed, and everybody laughed. I laughed too, so lad I almost spat out some sausage. So this is football, I thought, and everything changed.
1: That was an extract from the brand new, wonderful book, Square Peg Round Ball, Football, TV and Me, by Ned Bolting. Published by Bloomsbury, priced at 14 dollars 99 and available from the When Saturday Comes shop and other booksellers. Come on, lads, it's time to kick off. Welcome to When Saturday Comes, the half decent podcast that strikes the ball through a forest of legs and beyond a hapless goalkeeper. I'm Daniel Gray, and joining me are When Saturday Comes magazine editor Andy Lyons and writer Harry Pearson. This is an online recording, given current restrictions but hopefully it isn't too far away from the usual quality. Thanks to those who have joined the When Saturday Comes Supporters Club on Patreon so far. If you haven't, please have a look at patreon.com slash Comes. Harry, what's making your palate fizz this time? Well, it's um, that time of year when you can buy cut
2: price Easter eggs, of course, so Mm. I've got a couple of packs of mini eggs. I've got enchanted eggs and I've got twisted eggs, which I think reflect the duality
1: of human nature. The cream egg celebrates its fiftieth birthday this year. I noticed. Happy birthday, cream egg! And it still hasn't hatched. <laughs> no, it still. Hasn't. What's going on? What kind of bird will come out of it, Dan? Well, we left listeners on a real cliffhanger last time when news of your rearranged COVID vaccine broke live on air, and you now <laughs> injected, Harry. I am, I am injected. I went on
2: the Sunday, and Sunday afternoon to the Hexham Health Centre, and the nurse said to me when I went in, the nurse said, "Oh, you look very young." And I said, "Oh, thank you very much." And then she said, "And so this is your second jab?" And I said, oh, "No, no, it's my first one." And she said, "Oh, I see. I thought there's that we just we've got a big group of over eighty-five, so in getting their second, and I thought you were one of them." So, so basically, she thought I was a youthful-looking eighty-five-year-old, which wasn't quite. I didn't realize. I didn't think she was talking to me in quite a loud voice, sort of nodding her head when she spoke. You look very young. Like that, no, she was talking to me like that. Anyway. So that was so that shot me down, and then when it, and then the following day, I, what I didn't realise is when you, when you turn sixty in Britain, the NHS sends you a present, which is a home bowel cancer testing kit. <laughs> So that came the next day. So I've got that. I haven't opened it yet. I don't want to. I don't want to look at what
1: I have to do. Well, you want to keep back some surprises at the moment because there's not much to do, is there? <laughs>
2: exactly. I like to save it up. Save it up for a treat. Save save my home bowel cancer test for a
3: treat. Also, if you ever have a party again, you can have party games, and the winner gets gets to use the the bowel cancer test.
2: Yeah, he says, he says after you complete the test, put it in the envelope and send it away. And I just, I don't know, it's just something about whatever you're going to have to put oh, in that yeah. envelope. I don't, I feel don't feel comfortable putting it in a post box.
1: It would make for an interesting past the parcel prize if you were to have a party. <laughs> I like that when you tweeted about that, people in Scotland quickly pointed out that it's fifty in Scotland and their misery begins earlier. <laughs> that that
2: was one of those things that you put on Twitter and then realised that you have to be careful because I got several direct messages from people saying, "Harry, get yourself <laughs> tested, but stay strong." and things like that. And then I had to say, no, sorry, I only put it up as a joke. (laughs) I'm not actually, I haven't actually got cancer. An absolute Twitter peril, definitely. Don't joke on Twitter. Twitter peril is that people, do. I feel like saying, do I seem like the sort of person who discuss my physical, you know, my ailments on on social media?
1: (laughs) You also tweeted recently, what are bay leaves for? So you might also have some concerned chefs that that were really were seriously explaining it to you. I don't know. That's right. Well, I've never, I've, I, I put bay
2: leaves into things you know, because it always says two bay leaves and i put them in and then at the end of it, I think I've never heard anyone ever say, yeah, this is really nice, but I think what it's lacking is a bay leaf or mm, that lovely taste of bay leaf. I'm getting a bit of bay leaf from this. You know, no one ever says that, do they? <laughs> or I, I've never heard anyone say that anyway. Um, when I commented that though, a lot of people did, a lot of people jumped in Bayleaf believers jumped in, defending the Bayleaf, saying that you can't make a bechamel
1: sauce without one. Mm. It's an impassioned community, the Bayleaf community. It,
2: it is. The bay, I was surprised the Bayleaf bay aroused. It arouses strong opinions. Andy,
1: any
3: exhilarating happenings down London way? Uh, well, there's an important bit of soccer news, as mentioned in our <laughs> weekly email last week. There's, an, there's now a VAR Subutio set with a screen. It's the first new sabucho accessory in the world it's from a company in Hong Kong who now hold a license for sabucho. What they're going to do next? Maybe a drug testing kit or a sabucho club owner with private security guards, former Russian special forces, maybe something like that. I also noticed um, there's an official, unofficial Sabuto merchandise uh, done by a company called SabuchoStadium.com <laughs> who do a, a VAR, who do a, a complete VAR cabin with screens, but there's no figures sat around the screens. It's like a Marie Celeste VAR cabin. So I suppose like a whole of the story could develop during your subutia match. Let's have a VR adjudication. Hold on, where have they gone? Um so you know, that helped to you know, pad out your subutia experience a bit more. I'm um, talking <laughs> about referees, uh, as we did in our last podcast, um, a friend of mine pointed out to me, I've forgotten about this, we went to an early meeting of the, the FSA in London where <laughs> Steve Perryman was giving a talk and he was asked, what is the one thing that ref that players specifically don't like about referees? Could he think could he think of? And he said there's one thing in particular, the thing that referees do, where they stand still and they do that beckoning gesture. Then they point to the ground in front of them for the player to come over, you know, so the players to walk over. I'm doing it now. I'm doing, standing and pointing in front of you. I wouldn't want someone to do that to me in my place of work, you know, which in fact is my living room. So it would be particularly odd. I'd, take, I'd bristle at that, I think. So I can understand. So if you ever see a referee doing that with a player, know that the player is really hating it as he's having to march over to where the referee stood rather primly, pointing to his feet. Final bit of, it's actually football and horse racing news, actually, which is um, Alex Ferguson has a horse running in the Grand National this weekend called Give Me a Copper, currently 50-1. to 1. Um, It's a fine-tuned gelding, apparently. I suppose if you gelding, you're quite <laughs> highly strong. That's, that's one way um, of describing it. Yes, um, um, but are there any other current horses named after football figures you're about to ask me? Well, yes, there are. There's um, a horse called Aguero, three O's at the end, Aguero, referring, I suppose, to that goal against QPR that won Man City, the the Premier League title. Who's a nine-year-old Irish horse who's won nine (laughs) races so far. There's another one owned by a Man City fan called Gerard Slip, which is a bit of a, a cruel name for a horse. There is also a Klopp. Uh, who's, who's won six times so far? There's a Bielsa owned by a Leeds fan who's had four wins and 10 starts, and another one called Yorkshire Pierla, which apparently is named after Calvin Phillips. And in America, there's a five year old horse called Guardiola who hasn't won anything yet, but probably has a philosophy or something. <laughs>
1: Well, I took delivery of my beautiful wooden Bootham Crescent seat, finally, and I've placed it next to the television unit. And I wouldn't claim it had magical powers, but when the cat sat on it, he started shouting, Stop pissing about and just get it forward, City! And asked my wife how Stockport were getting on at Wrexham. So it's a pretty special thing. But I did start to think how nice it would be if it was a little time machine. And every time I sat on it, it would take me back to a Saturday afternoon at Bootham Crescent, probably a a nil-one defeat or the time I got food poisoning from ketchup in a pre-season friendly that had clearly been there since May. (laughs) (laughs) Issue 409 of When Saturday Comes is out now, and the letters pages are an enjoyable diversion as ever. Which letters did you enjoy in particular,
3: Andy? Uh, well, we got one from Gwilym Bohr who said he recently got a, a press release from a branding company, which was celebrating, uh, as the quote, celebrating those plucky people with ambition to bite big in this world. It said it reminded him that is Trevor Putney's name was always, it seemed to him, prefaced by the, t- by the word plucky. He was mm-hmm. plucky Trevor Putney. And that's all they can remember of them. So he wonder if other WC readers have been driven, firstly, they have been di- driven to distraction by press releases, but been rescued by adjectives that remind them of a long-forgotten nineteen-eighties football. I'm hoping we'll get more on that subject. Um, maybe Trevor Puttnam himself will write in, send us a, a plucky response.
2: Yeah, he had a, he had another uh, adjective that preceded his name at Middlesbrough.
3: Did he? Oh, <laughs>
1: yeah.
3: Was it was it a, was it a rude one? It might have been. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Was it dirty? Dirty Trevor Putney. Dirty Trevor Putney. <laughs> At its most
1: polite, it was ineffective.
3: <laughs> Inef- I think that's what it was, ineffectual. I can't. just if difficult one to get your teeth round, I would think.
1: <laughs> he was a very willing autograph giver. I've got his autograph probably five or six times when I was looking back through my autograph books for the recent When Saturday Comes. Live event. Did he sign himself Plucky?
3: <laughs> I'll, I'll recheck. Or maybe PTP. It maybe he abbreviated it to the three, the, the initials. And <laughs> um, we've also got um, uh, continuing the theme that we've had recently of people playing against, with, or against future footballers. Um, Nicholas Cliff writes that he used to play for a team called Hampstead Heathens in the Southern Olympic League, who included. Fu- uh, then future chance of the exchequer ed bulls not not a, a future footballer, but nonetheless someone you play football with who's, who was um, ed bulls was he says a bustling center forward known as rose z ed, ed um who's memorably um put in context by a captain who commented that he needs to be better at running the economy than he is when he's one on one with the keeper, otherwise we're all in trouble and he goes on to <laughs> ask um which leads to wonder what other politicians might have made their mark in lower league football um did Tony Blair ever put out the corner flags on Hackney Marshes? I, I suspect not, actually. Um, did Alistair uh, Campbell was a was he a false number nine on Peckham Rye? Maybe Alistair will write in, maybe Trevor Putney will write in in response to the first letter, but also to point out that he also did used to play against Alistair Campbell, who knows?
1: And Harry, the letters pages this time. Well
3: there was a there was a good letter about the the, the encountering footballers
2: in non-footballing contexts, uh, with John McGinley. Um, buying bricks and then Sam Allardyce in a co-op, and I noticed that in the in the letter, both John McGinley and Sam Allardyce referred to their wives as her and she, um, which I remember that my dad once said that any man who ta- ta- refers to his wife as her or she deserves a clip round the ear, and I think we can all I could all get behind that. I think in the case of Sam Allardyce, um, there was a good a good letter from uh, Liam Bambridge about football chants. There cemeteries next to football grounds, which we've talked about on this podcast, I think, and the fact of the, of the chants from the ground drifting over while people are in the middle of a service, which I think <laughs> it seems slightly it does sound, seem slightly unfortunate. Um, and there was also a letter about doing jury service with Kenny Burns, um, Dougal McKinnon, and I think that he, uh, he said that he wasn't allowed to discuss uh, what Kenny told him about the 1978 World Cup But I would like to know more about what Kenny's (laughs) views were of criminality. Usually, footballers who are quite dirty, often they have, often they themselves are very
1: keen on law and order for some reason. I wondered if Kenny was like that. What type of band do you both think Kenny Burns and the Jory Service would be?
2: Oh, a bit bit like Mike and the Mechanics, sort of thought, or Huey Lewis and the News there'd be some sort of like dad rock I yeah or well,
3: possibly a kind of like an R&B band like a band who have been slogging around the pubs for a while doing some probably occasionally supported some touring US R&B musicians in the late 60s perhaps. Oh
2: that's right yeah they might have that, that would be one of their things to say, oh yeah one of what the the, the bassist was on ready steady go supporting how yeah. we... Well,
3: one one of the backing musicians is later in some heavy metal band in the 70s but started out with with Kenny Burns in the Jewelry service <laughs> so, travelling in the van I
2: think Kenny Burns don't would have played the what? mouth organ. I like that idea. Yeah, the rock family trees. One of them would turn up. You don't know, about Deep Purple or something. someone who left the band early. All the rest of the band are being interviewed in these huge houses in Los Angeles, and he's in the front room of a terraced house in Wolverhampton.
3: But still, with several guitars in the background on the on the stands. Yeah, and then he says, the and then he and
2: then he says, "Do I regret it? No, not at all."
1: <laughs> they almost definitely supported the Bee Gees at one stage as well I think Probably in Ashton under Lime And now to repeat some exciting news We're delighted to announce our next When Saturday Comes live event Which we're calling Around the Grounds At 7pm on Monday April 19th You're invited to join special guests Simon Inglis and Mike Bailey And When Saturday Comes assistant editor Fionn Thomas For a half decent evening Exploring the wonderful world of football stadiums hosted by me Expect fascinating insight into ghost grounds, spectacular stadium views, the future of the football crowd, and much more. Plus, there'll be a chance for you to put your questions to our expert panel. Tickets normally cost £10, but members of the When Saturday Comes Supporters Club get discounts depending on their tiers. That's T-I-E-R-S tiers. Log in to patreon.com slash whensaturdaycomes and find the relevant post to get your discount code, then follow the link to grab your ticket. We can't wait to see you there. As mentioned, issue 409 of the magazine is out. Now Andy, tell us about some of the contents this time around. Well, we've
3: got a feature on the latest Champions League reforms, a discussion of which has now been put back for a bit actually since we finished the issue because UEFA and the, and the major clubs have disagreed over income streams, the typical the kind of thing they would disagree about. Um, but one one of the pieces by Kieran Monks looks at what the fans group football supporters in Europe have said about the reforms, a the number of teams in the, in the thing going up from 32 to 36, four more games being played um, before Christmas and what kind of effect that's obviously going to have on uh, domestic leagues and on the fact that there's going to be four extra qualifying places, two which are going to be given to clubs who haven't qualified but have a high coefficient, so it's basically the prospect of certain teams being in it in perpetuity, which would be uh, ridiculous. We've also got a piece, um, of the other piece for that feature by Peter Schimkat looking at how the Champions League is seen in Germany. A bit different to here, really. Germany, like England, has four places, but only really three clubs, Bayern, Dortmund, and Red Bull Leipzig, who mm-hmm. expect to qualify each year. So it's a, a sort of a bonus for one other club who don't expect to make much headway in it. Um, but in Germany, there's a feeling that the extra games that the clubs may have to play under the new format might actually make the Bundesliga more open than it has been recently. We've also looked at, at racism in Czech football, an article by Sam, Be- Sam Beckwith in the wake of the Rangers-Slavia Prague game and the racist insults aimed, apparently aimed at um, Glenn Kammer of Rangers. There's a feeling in, in the former Soviet bloc countries in general there's a reluctance by the authorities to get to grips with public displays of racism in football, whether it's by fans or players. because like, we're... By no means free of such problems here, the big increase that you hear about these things almost every day now, it seems a big increase in social media insults of, of black players here recently. We've got a piece on the collapse of Football Index, a gambling platform where, where people could buy shares in players and would get it, get uh, dividends based on their performances. The company went to administration early March and some people lost Thousands of Pounds, an article by Sean Cole wondering why it wasn't better regulated. And the second piece on the theme of gambling by Matt Stallard on why um, clubs and football in general shouldn't be taking sponsorship money from betting companies at a time when loads of people have uh, gambling addiction problems. Um, it seems that a shirt sponsorship ban may come in, but clubs are here. But clubs are, are lobbying behind the scenes to, to delay any changes. And uh, also my colleague Tom Hocking on some good news. Um, for once a season for Sheffield football. And that Sheffield FC, world's oldest club, have plans to move back to the city. They've been exiled in Derbyshire for 20 years. Uh, the plans will include uh, a visitor centre, which will highlight uh, Sheffield's role in the development of football. They have uh, a membership scheme, which is free to join. There's also a famous player from Yorkshire died last month, uh, Frank Worthington, who's a subject of, of Harry's column this month. Yes,
2: Harry, tell us more. Well, it, it, was, it, it was a bit of a shock to me, I mean, apart from Frank Worthington dying, is that I had a very vivid memory of seeing him play for Huddersfield Town at Ayerson Park in a in a midweek game. And I recalled him scoring a goal, I thought from the penalty spot. And he'd been barracked all through because he had long hair and everyone barracked him. And then I, I could sort of see him wheeling away after scoring this goal and giving this little wave to the Middlesbrough fans, this sort of cheeky wave. And it's very vivid in my mind this picture. And so when I when I when Andy asked me to do the column, I said, oh yes, because I remember seeing him play. And then, of course, when I wrote the column, I had to look up. Um, I thought, I'm pretty sure it was 68 or 69. Um, And I was sure it was, but I just found out what the date was. And, of course, when I looked it up, it turned out that Frank Worthington didn't score in that (laughs) game at all. So my memory of him is completely made up. Um, so yes, so, it's a, so that was a bit of a shock. So I've sort of carried that memory around with me. It's really, it's a really positive, me- really positive memory that it turns out it's just something that didn't happen at all. So yes, so it's a, it's a bit based on that. obviously just to look back at the life of one, you know, a really great player who probably a bit like one of those bands that we were talking about earlier. You know, he never quite. When he died, lots of people put up that clip of the famous goal that he got for Bolton Wanderers. And you thought that he said that was you know, I scored better goals than that in games that weren't televised. And you realised, of course, that most of his career probably wasn't, te- is, doesn't exist on film. So all we have of him are our memories. And in my case, we don't even have that anymore. <laughs> Such is life.
4: <laughs> so indeed. Pin badges, hats, scarves, hats and scarves and pin badges. Programs! Programs! Program
1: Subscribe to When Saturday Comes and you'll get every issue delivered direct to your door in 100% recyclable wrapping, which we used to call a paper envelope. You'll also save money on the shop price, receive discounts on books and T-shirts and get free access to our complete digital archive. Sign up at shop.wsc.co.uk
4: Jackpot tickets! Pound a go! Drawn at half time. £500, pounds, you're
1: to take on tonight. Right, I'm going to give the random topic generator a shove. Here we go. Gary Bannister, Bishop's Cleave FC, flamboyant St John Ambulance volunteers, and it's landed on yo-yo clubs. Oh, presuming this is not about competitive yo-yoing and what is a yo-yo team that frequently moves between divisions called, let's talk about yo-yo football clubs. Harry, what does that highly unexpected subject bring to mind? Well, it's sort of, I always remember,
2: because Middlesbrough have a reputation as a yo-yo club, and I can't remember which manager it was. Maybe it was Steve McLaren who said that he was he, they needed to shake off the yo-yo club tag. So remember, because of tags, or sometimes clubs have tags, and then the players have baggage, but the clubs have tags. But actually, I think Middlesbrough have actually been up and down less, it seems, than Manchester City when I looked at it, which is a bit of a surprise to me. But maybe, we, maybe we've been up and down because the other thing is whether just you know getting promoted and relegated often, but you have to do it, whether you have to do it in a sequence in order to qualify as a yo-yo club. Because for example, in Scotland, I think Dunfermline are the team that have been promoted and relegated most often but it's been spread over quite a long period so I don't know whether that counts as a yo-yo whereas for example Kilmarnock in the 1970s you know they made they were they went up and down six times in the 1970s and then again in 81 82 83 so from 1973 to 1983 they moved nine times Uh sterling albion as well between 49 and 62 they moved 10 times so i think that's it's more of a yo-yo or maybe it's just a quicker yo-yo i'm not really sure um because in in um, the rest of europe they have a different name for it elevator clubs is quite a common term um there's a strange name for it in poland that i wasn't sure whether it was just one of those wikipedia things which is called something like wanker wankstra or something like that, I'm not sure. You have to really have a sequence. And one of the most dramatic, I think, is uh, actually in Cyprus with uh, Aris Limassol. Uh, They're the smallest club in Limassol. I noticed that they have their own choir with a proper conductor and everything, which seems, from what I then read, a bit of a thing in uh, Cyprus and Greece. Maybe harking back to the ancient world and the days of the gymnasiums where the young men were trained in body and in mind, I think. But Aris Limassol... Uh, had an amazing sequence they they made 10 consecutive moves between 1997 when they were relegated and 2006 when they promoted they then managed one complete season in the Cypriot top flight and then they began another eight season burst of relegation and promotion that ended in 2015 and so they moved 18 times in 19 seasons and also during that time as you might imagine but they also got through a lot of coaches. They they went through fourteen in total. So imagine if you were the local, yeah, the local paper reporter in Limassol, you know, it's the sports writer. Your job was practically done for you. And Andy, on the subject
3: of Aris of Limassol, I just suppose for this for the fans, relegation wouldn't be such a big deal, would it? I suppose it'd be it'd be better than being mid table all the time. You know that on alternate years, even when you've had a bad year, you know what's coming next. You're going to beat more, yeah. You know, Win most of your matches and and possibly win a trophy. the 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 season they stayed up they really should have made a record. Do you think or had like a bus parade or something? or At least had had lunch mm-hmm. with the mayor. I, I hope something like that was sorted out for them. Does Iris? Does Iris mean? Um, is that uh, Aries? Is that the Aries, god of war? Is that where the name's from? There's a Greek club called Iris as well. I think it might mean that. That's an aside. Though, right in, if you're in Limassol, and, and there was Celta um, uh, in Spain from seventy-four seventy-five, had nine years in a row, where they went up or down, including one season in the third division. So, to bring that to life, I'm going to recite it. If you're ready, it's. Down, up, down, up, down, down, up, up, down. It's like a snapshot of my typical day. Put that to music, maybe put it on the loop, you know, I could probably have a hit. Uh, Brandbergen, one of the most popular clubs in Norway, uh, had a run of eight seasons in a row when they went down or up between 1979 and 1986. In two of those years, they were also the best supported team, but it didn't help them. Norway only had 12 team top division in those days. It's 16 now with two down, so I suppose it was it was harder to get established. Um, But I'm trying to think of a line about... um... You know about Bran and Brit and and being regular their regular performance, but as you can tell, I haven't haven't got one. Birmingham have, have had, <laughs> had the most relegations from the top level, twelve in total, twelve up and and twelve down. Leicester, also twelve up, but only eleven down since uh, two thousand and four when they were last, Leicester came up. Now Birmingham did at least do something Leicester didn't do, which is to win a trophy in their relegation season. Of course, Birmingham, win the League Cup uh, when Leicester lost the FA Cup when they went down in sixty nine, but I suppose talking to two Middlesbrough fans, I don't want to get too much into losing trophies and being relegated, so kind of swiftly move on from that. It looks <laughs> like Norwich and Watford could be coming straight back to Premier League and Bournemouth have got a pretty good chance in the playoffs as well. So we, we've we not yet had a season where all three relegated teams have come straight back, but this could be the one. Nor have we had a, a one where all, all three promoted sides have gone straight down, but it's only ever been two out of three so far. It's happened once in Germany in 78-79, Bielefeld, Nuremberg and and Darmstadt all went straight back.
1: I was interested, Harry, to hear you mention the Polish version. Uh, Something like, as you say, wanker, shtanker. Polish listeners, please, we we apologise, first of all, but also do write in with the correct pronunciation, which, according to the same website, Wikipedia, translates as roly-poly toy these clubs are referred to as, which is an interesting one. I think there's a Dutch one mentioned on there, uh, Heen and Via Club, translates as to and fro club. I, I was trying to think of... You mentioned the elevator one, and it made me remember a really strange type of lift called the Paternoster lift. Have you ever come across these type of lifts?
2: Oh, that's the. That's why you have to step out of it. It carries on moving,
1: and that's what I thought would be a better word for all of this. It's the most one of the most terrifying experiences of yeah, my life. Yeah, scary, isn't it? Yeah. Going into one of the main towers at Sheffield University when I was looking around which universities to go to, and just it doesn't stop. It's perpetual and, and open, and you have to choose your moment and step into the lift. And that's why I didn't go to the University of Sheffield. But it seems like a, a good name for these things as well, with football being perpetual as clubs jump in and out. I wondered if either of you could think of the most yo-yo manager or player.
3: As a player, there's Herman Ryderson, the Herminator, who had uh, five relegations from the Premier League. Also <laughs> in 2011-12, he played briefly in, in the Championship for Portsmouth and Coventry, both of whom went down that year. But he wasn't with them at the time, but he'd obviously um, worked his fluence on them.
2: I think he was, was he not also relegated as assistant manager of South End as well? I think, I, I, I suspect too. He's more, he's not, he's not so much a yo-yo as a, a, a yo-yo that doesn't, come back i don't know what that would be i don't know what a a, a toy that a toy that you drop on the floor and it just stays there i don't know what
1: that would be the thing is a a lot of cheaper yo-yos are like that anyhow i've experienced quite a few bad he's like a cheap well he is he's the cheap cheap yo-yo he's the prize one that you get at the fair for hooker duck he's a yo-yo with a. he's got a string his string's got a knot in it rather than the brilliant coca-cola ones you could get in the mid-1990s which were I don't excellent remember. that's that's you're too young Dan. you could do tricks with them people came into our school and demonstrated them one of the tricks was called walk the dog that's what i remember
3: but bear, then... bear in mind that harry's 85 so. <laughs> <laughs>
2: more of the bo- the bowling hoop generation just give me a wooden hoop with a little stick.
1: <laughs> in this, the same week, I found out I was technically a millennial as well, which was exciting. So after this, I'm going to um, get on my unicycle and go and buy some rye bread from an artisan bakery because that's what millennials do, I think.
2: Well, you're in the right place to do it, Dan. <laughs> I am. In the hipster area that you live. <laughs> uh, going back to the yo-yo the yo-yo <laughs> managers, uh, I mentioned Kilmarnock. Um, Willie Furney who was manager of Kilmarnock. I um, mean, previously he was signed by Middlesbrough. He was a record signing for Middlesbrough. And he played up front with Brian Clough, with whom he apparently, according to the according to the Borough Alphabet, there was frequent angry exchanges between the two men. Um, because Willie Fernie had played at Celtic, where he'd been told by his manager that you should never pass the ball unless it benefits the team. And according to the Borough Alphabet, he'd taken this advice to heart. Um, and and Brian Clough didn't altogether agree with his attitude, but and Willie Fernie was manager of Kilmarnock uh, for four years, and he had two promotions and two relegations in that time in his four year spell. And then he and then he was fired after a poor start, and he, that was the only coaching job he ever had
1: in football. So he's got a hundred percent yo yo record. West Brom had a a, a name based yo yo thing going on at one stage with managers, didn't they? Where they had lots of runs and.
3: Runs kept coming back and things. Oh, yes. So the Ron, Don, Johnny, Ron, John. Yeah, that's, one. that yeah,
1: sort that's of right. qualifies, I think. It says one Middlesbrough fan to another, but what are the psychological effects of following one of these teams? I was counting off the top of my head, and I think I started going to Borough in 88, but if you take the early part of my life, they were relegated or promoted 10 times between 82 and 98, I think.
2: Well, well you see, because well, when I started following Middlesbrough, they, ne- they never did anything. They just they finished sixth. They finished six in the old second division, as it was then, and so nothing exciting happened at all. You know, I, I remember. You know, it was more like. A, I, I remember thinking it was a bit. I had a friend who'd grown up during the war, and he he, he couldn't he couldn't take cream. He couldn't have cream in anything because it was too rich for him. And I sort of felt that as a Middlesbrough fan, if they, if any success would have been just too rich, you know, for me. So I think there was. A, so I grew up in a period of stability. You see which we haven't really had since then. But I think it's quite exciting, isn't it? I was thinking of the, of the Limassol team, whether they're Aries or Aris. I don't know, Aris sounds more like a Cockney rhyming slang for someone, doesn't it? But for their fans, you know, it was, there, was, there was always something to play for for them. You know, they, they, had, they kept, their interest was kept up till the end of every season. Yeah, you know, it was none of that bit at the end of the season where you just think, is it really worth bothering now? The players are on the beach. Their players were never on the beach before the end of the season, even though they lived in Cyprus.
3: Yeah, well, in in a, in a bit of live um, live researcher, I've just looked up um, typical average crowds of Aris Limassol. They seem to get crowds of a thousand or so when when they're in the top division. So they've got a fan base, so that they could have a fair turnout for that um, promotion party, I would think. Mm. Talking of
1: being in the middle and nothing really changing with 1970s and early 80s Middlesbrough, Andy, which clubs are the very opposite of the yo-yo? A stable toy with no string attached, possibly. Something by Tonka.
3: I mean, there's obvious clubs like Arsenal, of course, who've never been relegated from the top division. They came up in slightly controversial circumstances. And Bayern, the only club who've never gone down from the Bundesliga, they weren't in it for the first two years. But there's a few non-league clubs here who've never been relegated. Because non-league leagues used to be sealed competitions, very often with no automatic relegation or promotion, often in, until the late seventies in some cases. So Hendon, for example, have never gone down. They've, they've been in the Athenian, the Isthmian, the, league, the league whose name I can say, <laughs> uh, the Isthmian. I say again, and and now they're in the Southern League. Um, they've they've only moved across. They haven't they haven't actually gone down. Um, Macclesfield also never went down in over 100 years in existence till they're relegated from League One in 98, 99. Of course, they have been down again and had various problems since. But they'd been in the Lancashire Combination, Cheshire County League, Northern Premier, the Conference, League Two and League One, each time just moving up and, and uh, ne- never uh, never being relegated. So, obviously, their recent travail has been even more of a shock to, the, to older Macclesfield fans.
1: And I suppose your own team, Everton... Are in there?
3: Yeah, well, they they had two last day escapes in the mid to late nineties, but they hadn't previously been down since nineteen fifty fifty one. So you'd have to be in your late seventies, I guess, It's never been fun to remember the, the the last relegation. Of course, the year they came back, Liverpool went down, so the two didn't play each other in the league for uh, eleven years. That's actually part of my theory, not that it's much of a theory, as to why like three out of the four Beatles weren't really football fans. Paul McCartney was an Everton fan. The other three weren't really interested. And I wonder if it's whether, because they grew up in the 50s at a time when both clubs weren't doing very well. Although they got quite big crowds, Everton got quite big crowds and they came back into the first division in the mid 50s. In fact, they were the best supported team in the first year back. But even so, football wasn't anything like it. I mean, it's obviously a big deal for people in Liverpool, but the teams weren't successful. And I wonder if they, they, these days, I guess, if you're a young person, Liverpool, you'd probably develop an opinion on football. If asked which teams you support, you'd, you'd say, probably say Liverpool. But when they were growing up, football wasn't... The, the two clubs didn't have a very high profile nationally, you know, and maybe that coloured their view of it. But and I
1: Harry, think. I just wish that we pre-planned these things and it wasn't down to the random topic generator, because you could have had yo-yo biscuits as your snack at the start.
2: I could have... Oh, no. I didn't... If only we'd known, yeah. indeed. Yeah, it just proves that we don't proves that it is a random topic generator i think uh, the only team that that haven't been relegated in italy is inter milan um, which is quite because most of the other most of the other big italian teams have been relegated due to some financial shenanigans or match fixing so well done to inter for not getting involved in any of that stuff i think the other way is i think luxembourg is i don't know if there's any stable clubs in the luxembourg league i think practically every team there has been up or down at least a dozen times it's, it's the land of yo-yos, Luxembourg. Even Jeunesse Desh. I think so. Well, I don't know because rumelanger they, they've they moved 26 times. Stad Dudelanger, 22 times. And then, I don't know, Ramelamadingdong. I don't know. No, there's at least a dozen times, I think, most of them. Ah. If
1: you're a Luxembourg football fan and you know different, then please obviously get in touch. Well, Luxembourg has long famously been the place to go for excitement and that just shows in the football, doesn't it?
2: Well, after after I probably I've brought them up slightly because of course their victory over over the Republic of Ireland, which was a, a rare moment of celebration for Luxembourg football fans.
1: quick reminder that you can now get your tickets for Around the Grounds, our next online live event. Go to patreon.com slash when Saturday comes, find the relevant post to get your discount code if you are a member of our supporters club, and then follow the link to buy your way in for April the 19th and our 7pm kickoff. But now it's time for the part of the podcast where we each choose a record from that wonderful website, FortifyFootball.com. Andy, what have you picked? This
3: time I've gone for Austrian Sports Reporters Choir from 1978, Gruß Eich wir sind aus Österreich. Greetings, we are from Austria. Um, it marks Austria's first qualification of the World Cup since the 50s. Uh, they got at the at that tournament, Argentina '78. They got through the group stage and beat West Germany in the second round, albeit in the final game and didn't count for anything. Now, the lyrics on the back sleeve of this include: um, Here with us are Spain, Sweden, and Turkey. Okay. Bit not true, Hungary, Germany, and Brazil, Malta, and Mongolia. So I think they needed a sub editor to check that last bit, though. Of course, that might be Austrian sports reporters' humour. Thankful this didn't become a tradition here, though. I mean, imagine English football journalists making records about the team qualifying for a World Cup, like the freaks of Old Fleet Street or something. Doesn't bear thinking about. It. <laughs>
1: And Harry, what's your choice? Well, well,
2: by a strange coincidence, I've gone for uh, V Besta, um, which is SK Brown. already oh, yeah. mentioned as the, Yo- the Norwegian Yoyo Club. And it's uh, Bro Dream Fuse Ensemble who are involved in creating this. Um, the lead singer, they were a, a kind of one of those Scandinavian show bands who people like to uh, put pictures up of on Twitter occasionally, I think. Um, and the lead singer was a man called Ove Thue. who won the cover of, of the record it looks like a kind of pale Nordic Carlos Valderrama um, he did make various records over the years quite, a, quite an important Norwegian musician and in 1984 he actually had an entry in Norway's answer to a song for Europe the qualifying rounds to see which song will represent the nation in the Eurovision unfortunately he missed out to Dolly Deluxe who uh, listeners will remember of course finished 17th in the 1984 Eurovision Ove also made a record with one of Brand's uh, Bergen rivals, FK Filings, darling. But I don't think that's on the website yet.
4: Så for eksempel nummer to Når Helge Grausen som er frem Nere over sidelingen Ligger motstander back Igjen som en flekk Ja, Helgen er mer. Han spiller for tre Hele stadion for steng Når Helgen spiller vink Vi är er de bästa Hei og Vi er så gode at det går nesten ikke an La da da Men låt meg
1: I've gone for Up the Borough, Middlesbrough, 1974. We've talked about Borough as a yo-yo club, but this very season we've just lived through is the epitome of what Harry called a season of mellow fruitlessness in My Favourite Year, the great book published in the early 90s of various writers on various teams. And it's often still played, as far as I remember, at the Riverside, as it was at Ayrson Park. And crucially for the narrative of this podcast, if it has one... It refers to Graeme Soonus as Saunas, up the borough. On
4: the right to sing it out Show the team exactly how we feel Up the borough, the borough's going up The borough's going up to stay Hey! Up the borough, the borough's going up The borough's going up to stay Oh, the led Exactly how we feel. Up the bar, up the bar is going up, the bar is going up to stay. Hey, up the bar, up the bar is going up, the bar is going up to stay. The steward called me crazy, Barker and Big John, Spraggen made up my drink.
1: Each month on the When Saturday Comes podcast, I have a quick chat with someone from a club fanzine or podcast in a mirror of the way in which WSC once acted as a pivot for this country's vibrant zine movement. This time, I was joined by Natalie Bromley of Burnley's No Nay Never podcast.
5: No Nay Never started life many, many moons ago. Now, probably around the 2009, 2007, season which coincided with the um, explosion of Twitter as a social media platform and also Burnley's first ever promotion into the Premier League Um, and a small group of of, um, Burnley fans basically started um, back in the days when you could start your own hashtag on Twitter, started a Twitter Clare hashtag and formed um, essentially a blog and some of them were journalist students, media students and it was very much um, a hobby Uh, the, the whole idea of it I think was that we didn't want Content and information about our club to just be from local journalists and from the club themselves, which, with the best one in the world, can sometimes. Be quite agenda based and obviously often paint rosy pictures of things. And sometimes I think as fans, we want to challenge some points about the running of your club and performances on the pitch and how things are going with your local football club, and um, and just have a little bit of autonomy over the message that's delivered out there. And um, so it started life as a blog. Really, it was a, a website that was put up. We used to do live blogging um, through games until I think um, you got a little bit strict with what you can and can't do during live games now, and then. A couple of years later it so probably around 2011 it started life as a podcast and podcasts started to become a thing it's just two shows a week the analysis show a group of us just sit and talk about the game at the weekend some of the wider things that are going on the club whinging about var you know the kind of thing that's going on and then on friday night we introduced a couple of years ago an analysis show the friday night preview show which is um our stats guy that man Dave, who's absolutely brilliant. Um, he basically looks ahead to the as a preview to the show, but he does it from the stats based so We look at, you know, previous meetings between the two heroes, villains of previous fixtures, we look at um controversies and all sorts of stuff and during that analysis show we also cover um the known and ever fantasy football league as well which we have And we do a quiz of the week so it's a lot of fun it's a friday night preview show and and that's it and, and i think linked to that i i do a newspaper column for the local telegraph as well which is linked to the podcast so i think that that's what we do and and, and very much the the reason for doing it is is that we want Fan-led football content is more and more important, and for any club that has spent a significant amount of time in the Premier League, will understand what I mean. When you become a, a part of a massive vehicle that is the Premier League, often then you don't have autonomy over your own narrative, and particularly for a local club like Burnley, where you're used to having local fans and you know local fans running the club and being part of the media team and things, and local journalists who've covered the club their whole life, you know the message is often. You're often told what message needs to be delivered and you're often um, shackled a little bit by what Premier League and FA rules tell you that you can do. So I think in the, in the modern age of football, the fan voice needs to be kept alive. And that is what we're trying to do.
1: And for those unfamiliar with life in Lancashire football, presumably the name comes from your affectionate chant about your neighbour's Blackburn Road. Correct.
0: <laughs>
5: absolutely yeah i mean um every club has got their main rival i think i think it, especially in, in lancashire you have there's, there's a lot of football clubs in a very small space. So we do have a lot of local rivals, Preston, Blackpool, Lackminton, a bit further afield, like Bury and, and, and clubs like that. But everybody has their main rival. And, and obviously, I can't bring myself to say the name. Those down the, to the end of the M65 um, are our major rivals. And, and they sing a version of none and ever. And we sing our version. And that's exactly where our name comes from. Yes, yeah, none and ever.
1: One thing we share with me being a Middlesbrough fan one player we shared, was the brilliant Gary Parkinson. Oh,
5: yeah.
1: The right back on uh, my first Middlesbrough game and the right back in my first few seasons of going. Loved watching him. And then, of course, some years ago, well horrific thing struck and now Gary Parkinson mm. has locked in disease doesn't he but you with No Name Never are trying to raise funds for it through a book at the moment aren't you about Paul Weller one of your former players not of course the Jamson.
5: Yeah I mean it, it's not something that we are directly involved in so it's it's not something that we can take immediate credit for um, but what you tend to find and I'm sure Middlebury you, you have the same thing as well and a lot of town clubs will have this. Uh, the community spirit around Burnley is, is really really mm. big and when you have something like this you've got an next player and you've got charity initiatives or you've got other community initiatives that you want to that people want to support and need promotion for we will often put our hands up as no and ever you know the number of listeners we get and the number of Social media followers, and um, it's it's good profile for people. We they can use our voice to get publicity out there. And um, Paul Weller obviously is. Uh, Dave Thomas has written probably about twenty books now on Burnley, and Paul Weller long long I think it's long overdue as well. I would say Paul Weller's he got a great story to tell. And um, they finally got together and wrote his story. And he's he was one of the the old players who very rare these days played at one club his entire career, and um, and he he was um, at Burnley as some fantastic times that saw so people like Paul Gascoigne, Ian Wright, you know, uh, Chris Waddle, people like that through the So through who've got some great stories to tell. Um, and they're they using that to raise money for the, for the Gary Parkinson Trust. And I think it, oh, we've got another one as well, Lenny, Lenny john who unfortunately, he's a, a previous player as well. He's been diagnosed, unfortunately, with motor neuron disease. Um, and it's, those, it's that kind of community where if we can, if we can help promote a, a charity then we will, and um, but yeah. If any of the listeners want to, to jump on our web on our Twitter, it's at None and Never. Uh, you'll be able to find some of those links if anybody's interested in just general football books and helping raise money for for a really good trust. You'll you'll be easily be able to to follow all the links on our social media. But it is good.
1: Absolutely, it's easy to assess that you didn't really have a choice in supporting the Clarets being from <laughs> that fine town. When did you start going? When did you fall for them?
5: Nine, I was nine years of age so literally it was um, my dad was a Burnley fan and his Burnley season ticket holder from being nine himself around the same age <laughs> Um but he was born and raised there um, and I think it's literally as simple as He wanted boys, got girls, and I had very little choice. Um, So, you know, both me and my sister were were brought up at Turf moss. but I got my first, I don't think think I got a season ticket at nine. I seem to think I did, but that feels like really, really young. So I wonder whether or not being nine was the first year I went just to test the water and I got a season ticket the year after. But it's certainly around that age. Um, and apart from a couple of seasons where I was at university and, and, and away from home, and i had to, I kept my season ticket, I believe, and just my auntie went home, my sister went home, somebody. Um, but obviously, I didn't get to see those games, and I've, I've gone ever since. And it's now, it's one of those things where I've always gone to the football with my dad, you know, for, at three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon was. We'd park our cars up at the same place. We'd walk down to the ground, same routine, watch the football. And I'd spend time with my dad. What
1: do you consider to be the best of times? And then I have to ask the worst of times in your supporting life.
5: I'm going to start with the worst of times just so that we can finish on a high. A really low point for me was probably, oh, this, uh, this is a bit of a weird one, really, because there can be low moments every single game, you know. You know, sometimes you can come away day. like this season's been horrific for a start. So I think I think it's difficult to pinpoint a low moment because there's always there's always next Saturday and that's there's always next season and that's a great thing about football. I think in the two thousand and eight two thousand and nine season, which was the Burma's capital punishment season, that was the season we got promoted to the Premier League for the first time. Um, Judas Coyle was still managing us back then, and we got right the way through to the semi-finals of the was it the Carling Cup and the League Cup essentially and we we were away with everybody in our League Cup game that year was a London team so it was, that's why it was called Capital Punishment we beat Fulham, we beat Chelsea, we beat Arsenal and then we played Spurs in the two-legged semi and we went down to Spurs and we were losing 4-1 away from home so it looked like it was game over and the return fixture was at Turf Moor so we, we were on at 4-1 down and we won three nil on the night to take it to four all. And I remember just we'd had so many chants from the Spurs fans all the way through the game because we went one nil up, um, and then they scored four, finished four one, and they were singing the chant one nil and you explete it up um, and then when we won it uh, uh, when we, we took it back to 3-0 to make it 4 all on aggregate there was a great moment after at a time where the, the first bands were just stunned into silence and we were chanting back at them 4-1 and you mm, it up and that was that was a great moment and then it went to extra time and they scored 180 seconds away from the end of extra time now in any other competition, we would have won on the away goal rule, but for some bizarre reason in the League Cup that, up to that point, away goals didn't count. And we got we got all the way through, nearly got it to penalties, um, and uh, Pavlyuchenko scored with about 180 seconds left on the clock to take them through to Wembley. And that was just heartbreaking. For a club like Burnley at the time to be so close to Wembley to a cup final was horrific. But... On the plus side, and this is where I probably come to too, with, the, with the best of times, that I think spurred us on that season to get to promotion through the playoffs because I think we just wanted to get to Wembley to a playoff final. And I think, that, I think that disappointment of that night just gave the players something that they needed to get the rest of that season done and get to Wembley. And of course, Burnley got promoted. They won the beach in United in the playoff finals and got to the Premier League for the first time in our history. And... The club's finances at the time were in really dire shape, and there was a a lot of rumours that we were close to administration if we hadn't have got up that season. So just goes to show, and I think that's the point I was trying to make, albeit not particularly very um, eloquently, that that's the thing with football: you can have the low points, but you've always got the high points. And and for a Burnley fan in the last decade, it's been predominantly high points. We've been in the Premier League. 11, you know, eight times in the last 11 out of the last 11 years. We're now in our fifth consecutive season. We've got to Europe for goodness sake. So it's like, you know, it's it's a good time. I I fear for the young generation of Burnley fans who haven't quite seen us in League four
1: (laughs) (laughs) on a Tuesday night
5: with a thousand fans playing, uh, you know, people who can't pass the ball together. But, you know, they've had it good.
1: Now, Turf Moor, one of my favourite grounds, how could it not be with wooden seats and in them. one stand and, and the, the view out of the ground to the, the hills and the oh, terraces, yeah. and the view of the ground when you climb up um, above Burnley, it's a lovely view of the ground, yeah, I, I think, there. Do all fans of Burnley feel like football romantics like me feel about Turf Moor, or does anyone pine for a, a, a mega bowl outside the, the town with a greater capacity and all of that?
5: And if there are fans who... who... Time for the new mega bowl, uh, I certainly haven't come across them. Uh, I suspect. <laughs> no they may fall into the same category as a new generation of, of things who think that we're football superstars and I think somebody needs to get hold of them and educate them. Uh, but certainly, <laughs> certainly, I think I, I think I would po- probably speak to the vast majority of Burnley fans where I say we would be utterly horrified if we lost Turf more. Listen, we know it's not perfect. We know it needs a bit of a coat of paint somewhere. Um, the, the wooden seats add character, shall we say. Uh, but quite frankly, I'm not that interested in making the uh, the away fan particularly comfortable and you know, <laughs> to, to be able to give them lots of voice to spur the team on because we want to win. But it, it's it's our home. It's where we've always been, and I think I think the the place where it is it's right in the heart of Burnley. There's terrace, rows and rows of terrace houses around it. You can see the the hills, like you said. Where I sit, I sit in the James Hargreaves Lower, and so I have that view overlooking where the wind, char- the wind farms are. The they're the, the not windmills, the the wind farm thingies. Yeah. the things that spin around. Um, and <laughs> that was that was very technical. I tell you, this is high caliber of analysis for me. Spinning things that produce the wind, and it's just it's amazing. And I think, and it is. It, I, I I want to keep hold of. It. Football is about supporters. It's not about Expected goals and football angles and VAR and that stuff to me. Football is to me about being sat in freezing cold with a cup of Bovril and a Benny and hot on a Saturday afternoon with my dad, bemoaning goals. Penalty. That was a penalty. It definitely wasn't a penalty. It should have been a penalty. We we were robbed, you know. And and actually spontaneously being able to celebrate a goal without having to wait for three minutes while VAR check it. And and I don't want to lose that. I don't want us to lose what football was to us growing up and what the family experience and what it meant to the live fan and unfortunately because of the money involved and because of the growth of the, the premier league um product as it is and and listen i'm not i'm not massively anti-premier league here i've done a lot of good things for the game but the downside of what that the football has become to a global audience is just taken away from the fun at the ground. And I think we are now the person the, the bottom of the ladder of important things to consider with football. So I, I would, you know, I do want Turf more to stay there.
1: So thinking back to the, the August days we're all praying for, oh, <laughs> what God, do you please. look forward to most of getting back to that sacred ground? A
5: hundred percent without question, the people who I sit around, my football family, um, we have all had the same season tickets for years the same people we also get yeah fair enough the old seat might move every now and again but the, the family who sit behind me I've known them for years like their youngest daughter she was a baby when we first moved into those seats and she's like she's going to college soon you know what I mean she's, she's grown up she's a, she's a teenager now you know and it's people who you know when when the pandemic first hit and football was taken away from us it was you know, the footballing family just tracking you down on social media and sending a me messages saying, is your dad okay? Because obviously my dad's the oldest one of them now. He's a pensioner now. In fact, saying, is your dad okay? Can we get you anything? And, you know, passing the message on saying, well, lucky lucky, is vulnerable, so he's going to have to shield. But I didn't see anybody for the first six months of the pandemic. And, you know, like people who I sit with at the football saying, Natalie, I'm going to the shops to get some stuff. Can I deliver in the food package? You know, and, and then when, when football first started in Project Restart, one of the guys who sat behind us was a wonderful guy he he bought uh, you could get post copies of the printed program and he bought one and sent it to my dad so that he could listen to the radio and and just it's like the, the, you don't get that in other sports and that these are people who are not they're not friends you know well they are friends but they're these football family and every is the same and it you know you'll have your things where you'll disagree about who's playing bad, who's playing good. And my dad will often come out with something like he does. And people say, David, shut up. Like, what are you talking about? But we're friends and we're football. we've had football family. And, and do you know what? That moment, the first time that I'm on Turf Moor and we score a goal and the whole crowd jumps onto their feet and cheers and you hug the guy behind you because you've done that for the past 10 years, I might cry. I genuinely might burst into tears that moment, that first time you just jump up. Because as much as as football's been great during lockdown and that we've seen every second of every single game, we've been able to watch it all, it's just not been the same. And I haven't, you know, I, I've, I've done a fist pump on my sofa and gone, yes, get in when we've scored. But since Spurs at home, the last time I saw a live game, I haven't jumped to my feet and jumped up in the air and celebrated a goal. So that moment is going to be, to hear that noise again, to hear... 24,000 people jumping up and down, cheering at the same time. It's going to be phenomenal. Can't wait.
1: You've been listening to the When Saturday Comes podcast, produced and edited by me, Daniel Gray. Please have a think about supporting us on patreon.com slash whensaturdaycomes, which will give you access to bonus podcast material and other goodies. And please do join me, Andy and Harry again next time for more vital, topical and half-decent chatter.